Amen. Praise the Lord. I want to invite you to turn to two openings of Scripture, John chapter 9 and Luke chapter 5. I've got a lot of things rolling over in my heart and uh, tonight, so I'm not sure exactly where we're going to go with this, but uh, I know where we're going to start, and we'll see where we wind up. John chapter 9, Luke chapter 5. We'll start in John 9, beginning in verse 1. It said, And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Now, before we go any further, I want to, um, um, well, let me make a couple of comments. First of all, if the church was as smart as the disciples before they got saved, we'd be in a whole lot better shape. Because notice what they recognize. They recognize that sin is the cause of sickness. They don't know whose sin, but they recognize that sin is at the root of sickness. Their question is, since we know that sin is the cause, sin is the issue, whose sin caused this condition? Was it the man's sin? Well, that wouldn't make sense because he was born blind. How could he sin before he was born? So then their, their second option, their fallback position is, well, maybe it was the parents. Maybe it was sin on the part of the parents that caused their son to be born blind. You know as well as I do that the devil tries to beat you up in both of those things. The devil will try to tell you that your problem is because of how you've messed up or as a parent, he'll tell you that your mistakes and your sins and the things that you've done wrong throughout your life are going to be visited on your children. And especially if something does happen to your children, the devil's right there to blame you for it. But notice what they knew. They knew that sin was the problem. Now Jesus answers their question. He said, neither this man sinned nor his parents. That was the only question they asked. Whose sin caused this man to be made blind? We know that sin's the problem. What we don't know is whose sin is the problem. So whose is it? The individuals? Or is it the parents? Jesus said, neither has this man sinned nor his parents. Now, I'll remind you that the, the original text, the original Greek, does not have punctuation. If, uh, if you and I were to, to read it, if it, there was a, the original manuscript in front of us, it would read, uh, to look to us in all capital letters without any punctuation. I give the translators a hard time sometimes because they translated it one way and instead of another way or, or whatever the case is. But the translators had an, a tremendously difficult job because not only did they have to translate language, they had to make sense of, of manuscripts that, that really didn't divide topics or anything else. I mean, it was just a giant run-on sentence, a 66-book run-on sentence. And for the most part, they did an excellent job. However, any punctuation that is in the translation is added by the translators according to their understanding of what's being said. Sometimes they were right, sometimes they weren't. Here where Jesus said, neither is this man sin nor his parents, you could put a period right there. Period. Because that's the end of the question. He answered their question. Then he goes further and says what he's going to do. Now he's, he's not changing topics, but he's moving on to another thought. Neither has this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should may, may be made may manifest in him, comma, I must work the works of him that sent me while it's day. So he's talking about two things. He answers the question, who sinned? Neither, Adam, neither the, the individual sinned or the parent sinned. Well, okay, let's stop there for another moment. If it wasn't the parent sinned, if it wasn't the, ch the individual sinned, whose sin was it? Adam's sin, sin is in the earth because of Adam Romans 5 12 says wherefore 
by one man sin entered the world. The one man he's talking about is Adam in the Garden of Eden. And death by sin. Death meaning the consequences of the broken law. The consequences of disobedience against God. Now what are the consequences of, of disobedience against God? Well, first and foremost, God told Adam, In the day that you eat of the tree of the, uh, the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. Hebrews says, Dying thou shalt die. In other words, death shall overtake you. Now what death is he talking about? He said it would happen that day. Well, physical death did not occur that day. Adam didn't die for 930 years after he sinned against God. So he can't be talking about physical death because that didn't happen. That did not occur on the day that Adam sinned. So what death is he talking about? He's talking about spiritual death. Now what are the consequences of spiritual death? Well, the Bible identifies spiritual death as having the consequences. Spiritual death meaning separation from God. That's what spiritual death means. It does not mean the cessation of existence. It means to continue to exist separate or apart from God. And that's what spiritual death is. See, hell is not a place where people cease to exist. It's a place where they exist separated from God, and that's a place of torment. It's a place of darkness, because God is light. So where he said, In the day that thou shalt eat thereof, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt surely die, what he's saying is, spiritual death will from that moment begin to overtake you. And from that moment, sin entered the world. From that moment, sickness overtook man. From that moment, poverty overtook mankind. Some to greater degrees, some quicker, some to lesser degrees, and some slower. But sin, sickness, and poverty began to rule and reign on the earth. So when Jesus says, neither has this man sinned nor his parents, he does not say, guys, you got it all wrong. Sin's not the problem. Instead, he answers and says, it's not this man's sin, nor is it his parents' sin. Well, then whose sin is it? Adam's. We know that by Romans 5.12. Death passed upon all men because of Adam's sin. This is a, sickness is a consequence or a characteristic of spiritual death. So Jesus says, neither is this man's sin nor his parents. We know that it's Adam's sin that caused the problem. But then he goes to another thought. He says, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him, I must work the works of him that sent me while it's day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And let me ask you a question. You've read this story many times, I'm sure, just like I have. What works does Jesus do? What work does Jesus perform in the life of this man? He heals him from blindness. So what works was he sent to do? The work that he was sent to do was to heal the sick. Now, I grew up in a denominational church that interpreted this scripture this way. Neither is this man's sin nor his parents, but that, I may, but that I may work the works of him that sent me. In other words, they interpreted that to say, no, it wasn't this man's sin, nor was it his parents' sin. This man was born blind, so I'd have somebody to heal when I came along 33 years after I came into the earth. Now, folks, let me ask you something. Is God so hard up for sick people that he's got to make one for Jesus to heal? Does that even make sense? No, it doesn't. It doesn't line up with the character and the nature of God revealed in other scripture. Jesus says it's Adam's sin that's the problem, and that sin caused death to pass upon all men. But I'm here for a different purpose. I'm here to do the works or work the works of him that sent me, the Father who sent me, and the works that he does and performs and, and operates in and for this man is a work of healing. 
So without any further interpretation or anything else, we have to understand that the work of God is healing, not making people sick. While he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay. And he said, go wash off of the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. He went his way and therefore washed and came seeing. Look at Luke chapter 5. Let's start reading in verse 17. And it came to pass on a certain day that he was, as he was teaching, that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by, which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Notice the teaching brought the power of the Lord, made present the power of the Lord for healing. You go in through Jesus' ministry and, and, and separate the Gospels in a chronological manner, and you'll find out that the greatest miracles, the greatest multitudes of people that were healed in Jesus' ministry, the greatest um, uh, events and occurrences of healing that took place came after times where Jesus taught the people because God confirms his word with signs following. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them, and behold, there brought it, men brought in a bed a man which was taken with a palsy, and they sought means to bring him in and to lay him before him, and when they could not find by what way they might bring him in because of the multitude. They went up on the housetop and let him down through the tiling with his couch into the midst before Jesus. And when he, Jesus, saw their faith, he said unto them, unto him, the man, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. Now can I ask you a question? What did the man come for? Wouldn't you understand that it being carried by four friends, a man sick with a palsy, obviously he can't walk himself, the other guys are carrying him. Wouldn't you understand that he's coming for healing? Why then did Jesus address sin? Because of what the disciples knew in John chapter 9, revealed in John chapter 9, sin is the reason that sickness is in the earth. God didn't create sin, folks. God's not the author of sin. He's not the instigator of sin. He's not the one that influenced Adam to sin. The devil did that. The devil is the author of sin. When God made the earth... He looked at it after six days. He made an end of everything that he made. And he looked at it and said, this is very good. And sin's not in the picture. God didn't create sin. Sin is a, is a result of broken, God's broken law, disobedience to God. So Jesus looks at the guy, looks at all four of them. When he saw their faith, he said to him, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, let me ask you another question. Is it necessary for Jesus to talk about sins to heal the man? Well, there's very few other examples that we have in Jesus' ministry where he did address sin when he healed. Why then is Jesus addressing sin? Because he knows his crowd. He knows the crowd would accept healing as a miracle work of God, but they will not accept the association with forgiveness of sins. Because they think that healing can be something that God does through man, but forgiveness of sins is something that God can only do himself apart from man. So Jesus hits this situation head on. Jesus said, Jesus perceived their thoughts, verse 22, and answered unto them, saying, Why reason ye, or what reason ye in your hearts? Which is easier? Whether means which. Which is easier, to say thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say rise up and walk? As far as the, the Pharisees are concerned, 
saying rise up and walk is a whole lot easier to say than your sins are forgiven. But notice what Jesus is saying. Which is easier to say thy sins be forgiven thee or to say rise up and walk but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on the earth to forgive sins. He said unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise and take up thy couch and go into thy house. And immediately he rose up before them and took up that whereon he lay and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. Now what does Jesus prove? Jesus proves that sin and sickness are associated. He proves that it's the same power that, is a, that he's enabled, that he is equipped with to forgive sin that heals sickness. Same power. That's why he says, which is easier? As far as Jesus is concerned, it's the same thing. Why? Because sickness is the result of sin in the earth. Deal with the sin issue? Sickness is not a problem. Because sickness is a byproduct of sin, literally, spiritual death, which came because of Adam's sin, original sin. Turn with me over to Galatians chapter 3. No, 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 don't go there. Um, Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. Here's something we usually associate Mark chapter 11 with uh, the woman with the issue of blood, or I'm sorry, with, uh, uh, with Jesus cursing the fig tree and giving us the, uh, the great scriptures on how faith operates and so forth. But the question came up, in Jesus' ministry, where do you get the authority to do these things? Now, that means authority to forgive sins. The Pharisees wanted to kill him for that, by the way, but they feared the people. You'll see that here in a minute when he, when he tells them about his authority. Every time Jesus talked about sins and forgiveness of sins and so forth, the Pharisees, that just made them go crazy. The only thing that, that infuriated them and in, uh, enraged them more than that was when Jesus said he and his father were one. Because literally, that's saying the same thing as far as they're concerned. Only God has power to forgive sins. So if you claim to have the power to forgive sins and prove it by healing the sick, at least in Jesus, by Jesus' testimony, then that's a real problem for the Pharisees. Because, see, they had everything divided out in their thinking. Healing the sick, okay, God uses prophets and sometimes other people for that. But forgiveness of sins, that's only God. No man has that power. No man is enabled with that power. No man is given that kind of authority to do this. So the Pharisees come to Jesus in Mark chapter 11. Um, well, let's start reading in verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, there came to him the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And they said unto him, By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority to do these things? They're not questioning that he has authority. He's proven that. They want to know what is the authority that you have and where did you get it? Who did you get it from? That would include, from what we've just read, authority to forgive sins, as well as authority to heal. And Jesus answered and said unto them, I will also ask you one question. You answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? You answer me. And they reasoned with themselves. I can just see them. They're huddling up. They reasoned with themselves and said, if we tell him it was from heaven, he'll say, why didn't you believe him? Well, that'll trap us. We can't say that. But if we say of men, the people will come get us. Because they all counted John a prophet. That he was a prophet from God. And they answered and said unto Jesus, we cannot tell. And Jesus answering said unto them, neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, folks, 
Jesus does not try to keep the information a secret. He's going to explain. And we can very easily see, because Jesus says the same authority that enabled John to do what he did was the authority that was given me to do what I'm doing. So what was the authority that was uh, operating in John? What was uh, the baptism of John all about? Was it from heaven or was it of men? What's the answer? Well, you can't just say it was heaven because it wasn't something that brought redemption. Anything from heaven would have been perfect. And John's baptism was only a partial work. John said, believe on the one coming after me, that is Jesus. I'm not worthy to tie his shoes. So it can't be just from heaven. But right on the other hand, was it just from men? No, because God anointed him to do it. So the baptism of John was very simply this. It was the baptism of men or the baptism of man anointed by God. In other words, John was enabled, equipped, and sent to do what he was sent to do because he was a man who had authority here on the earth, which all mankind was given authority in the beginning. He lost some of it because of Adam's sin. But man who has authority on the earth, anointed by God. Now, chapter 12 tells us Jesus' description of his anointing from God. And he began to speak unto them by parables. A certain man planted a vineyard and set a hedge about it and digged a place for the wine fat and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And at the season he sent to the husbandman a servant that he might receive from that husbandman the fruit of the vineyard. And they caught him and beat him and sent him away empty. Now let me stop here and explain to you what these things mean. The husbandman was, is God. The vineyard is the earth. And he entrusted it to someone else, mankind which is exactly what the Bible says happened at creation. God created the earth. He made it. He created the earth. He put everything there. He furnished the earth and said to man, I give you dominion over the work of my hands. At the season, the husband sent a servant. Now, who is the servant? The servant is not only the prophets of old. The servant includes Jesus. And what did mankind do? What did the religious leaders do who represent mankind in their relationship or their status with God? What did the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders do to all of the prophets that God sent? They persecuted them, didn't accept any of them. They knew that they had power, and so they had to be careful how they did things. But they did exactly what Jesus describes here. At the season, he sent to the husband and a servant that he might receive from the husbandman of the fruit of the vineyard. I said the husbandman was God. The man that plants the vineyard is God. The husbandman represents mankind, particularly the Jews. And they caught him, verse 3, and beat him and sent him away empty. And again he sent unto them another servant. Here's another prophet. And at him they cast stones and wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully handled. And again he sent another and him they killed. There are a number of prophets that they killed in the Old Testament. And many others beating some and killing some. Having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last unto them, saying, They will reverence my son. They won't treat my son like they did the others, the servants that I sent. But those husbandmen said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the husbandman and will give the vineyard unto others. And have you not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing and is it marvelous in our eyes. 
And they sought to lay hold on him, but feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. And they left him and went their way. What is Jesus identifying? Jesus is saying, the Father God, the creator of the vineyard, creator of the earth, is the one that sent me. That's hard to argue with when you see the miraculous things that he's done. Now, what do those miraculous things include? Those miraculous things include forgiveness of sins, not redemption from sin. Redemption or remission of sin means to do away with once and for all. Jesus didn't do that. He forgave or laid aside sins when he was here on the earth. We've seen a couple of examples of that already. You remember there were other people that Jesus healed where he said, Go and sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. What does that mean? That means I've covered the sin that was involved and associated with what the situation, the, the sickness that you had before. Don't open the door to another bad thing by sin again in your life. Does that mean that his sin was the, the, the individual sin was the cause of the sickness? Possibly. We don't know for sure. But we do know that Jesus broke the power of sin in order to heal the individual that he was talking to. So he forgave sins. He did not remit sins. Now, how was he able to do that? How did Jesus have the power on the earth? Because the Bible says he was a man. He laid aside his heavenly power and glory. If he was here on the earth as God, okay, that's easy to figure. God can do anything. But he wasn't here on the earth as God by his own admission. He laid aside his heavenly power and glory. He's operating on the earth as a man. How could any man have power to forgive sins? That's what the Pharisees are going nuts about. They looked at Jesus and they didn't see God. They looked at Jesus and they saw a man. They said, you're just like us. You're flesh and bone just like us. You eat just like us. You get hungry just like us. You need air and water just like us. You're a man. How could any man forgive sins? But they discounted the righteousness of mankind. See, when God put Adam here on the earth, he made him a righteous creature. And as long as Adam did not disobey God, and until Adam disobeyed God, he had complete dominion over the earth. Now think about it. The devil is here. We know that because of the instruction that God gave Adam in the Garden of Eden. He said, guard and protect the, uh, dress and keep the garden. King James translates it, dress and, uh, dress and keep the garden. You look up those words and they literally mean guard and protect. If there is no enemy, there's nothing to guard and protect against. If Satan is not already here, there is no enemy. There is nothing to guard and protect the garden against. So the fact that God puts Adam in the middle of the garden, he has complete authority, complete dominion over the work of God's hands, and he says, dress and keep the garden, garden protect it, means that the enemy was already here. Satan didn't come from outer space somewhere in the form of a serpent and start talking to Eve. There wasn't some spaceship that landed in the Garden of Eden, and that's what drew Adam's and Eve's attention and caused them to fall. Satan was already here. Yet he was an irrelevant being. He's present. Sin is, is, is in him. He's the originator of sin. The Bible says his pride was the original sin. His pride against God. He said, I will exalt my throne above the heavens. I will exalt my throne above God. I'll be like him. And that's exactly what he tempted Eve with. Eat the tree of the tree that God told you not to because then you'll be like God. I don't know how Eve could have thought I can be any more like God than I am. I don't know what she's looking for. But the fact is, the Bible says she was deceived. That's easy to understand. She had to be, or else she wouldn't have done what she did. And Adam wouldn't have stood by and let her do it. Apparently, he was standing there watching and listening to the whole thing. He wasn't just some, you know, bystander that comes in after a while and says, 
And his wife says, oh, by the way, I made apple pie. Have some. He was a participator just like she was. So that's what Adam was tempted, that's what Eve was tempted with originally, and then Adam too. Because the devil was already here. But man was in the earth alongside, coexisting, cohabiting with the originator of sin, the evil one. And yet the evil one had no dominion, had no authority, had no sway, had no influence whatsoever upon man. None. What I want you to understand, folks, is it's not the presence of the devil that's the problem. It's our lack of understanding of who we are. Because now Jesus comes to the earth as a righteous man, the only righteous man there's been since Adam. He comes to the earth, he is without sin, and as a result, he is free because he's born of a virgin, not born of a man, not born of a father, but instead his father is God who creates life in the virgin's womb. So Adam bypasses this, the death that passed upon all men through Adam's sin. That's why the virgin birth is so important. You can't discount the virgin birth and believe Jesus was sinless. It's just the way God made things. So now God has made his son, brought his son into the earth. Jesus is operating on the earth as a, a man without sin, which means he has Adam's original authority. He walks, dwells, cohabits, if you will, in the same earth, the same place where the devil is, and the devil has no part in him whatsoever. None. And as a result, Jesus says, I have the power and the ability to forgive sin, to lay aside your sin because of my righteousness. Not because of you, but because God has sent me to show mankind what his plan and purpose is for setting them free. So based on my righteousness and the anointing that I have received from God, meaning the work that he sent me to do and the power that he's equipped me with to do it, I am able to forgive your sin, break the power of sin over your life, even though you haven't done anything to earn it, and heal your sickness while he was here on the earth before he ever went to the cross. Now, folks, I would submit to you that that's a pretty good position to be in. Why then did Jesus go to the cross? Remember why Jesus talk, or what Jesus said to the disciples. He said, it's better for you that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the Holy Ghost can't come. It's better for you to have the Holy Ghost in you than to have me with you. Turn with me over to Galatians chapter 3. I can't get away from Galatians chapter 3. I, I taught on this a couple of weeks back and a couple of sunny nights ago. And certainly that wasn't the first time. But something about this has been sticking with me for months. Galatians 3.13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Please notice it does not say Christ has forgiven your sin. It says Christ has redeemed you from the curse of the law. Something you need to know about forgiveness. And that is forgiveness is never spoken of in the New Testament. Unless it's incorrectly translated. In relation to the unsaved. Forgiveness is never offered to the unsaved. Redemption and remission of sins is. Redemption or remission of sins is never talked about for the believer once he's saved. Only forgiveness. Why? Because even after we're saved, we sometimes mess up. That's why 1 John 1, 9 is so important. 
Because when we mess up, it doesn't change our relationship with God, but it breaks our fellowship with Him. So what do we need? We need forgiveness. We need the laying aside of that sin so that we're back in the original place of remission or redemption from sin like it never occurred. But see, that's never offered to the unsaved. That's never offered to the world. Forgiveness is never offered to the world, only the believer. Some people want to take away 1 John 1, 9 from us, and it, it's just proof positive, in my opinion, that they don't know anything about righteousness. But that's all right. God lets us all grow at our own pace. Maybe they'll see it someday. I don't know. But you're not going to take it away from me because I understand what it means. I understand what it's about. So here in Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us. The word redeemed means to ransom, to rescue, or to deliver. Not forgiveness. He's talking about doing away with something once and for all. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. What is the curse of the law? Literally, the curse of the law is spiritual death. That was the original curse that came upon mankind as a result of God's broken law. But we know the characteristics of spiritual death are many-fold. The characteristics of spiritual death are sin, sickness, and poverty, and every other evil work. But those three primarily are the ones that we focus on. Those are kind of the catch-all categories. So Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. He's redeemed us from spiritual death. He's redeemed us from sickness. He's redeemed us from poverty. Why? Being made a curse for us. Here's the reason Jesus went to the cross. Jesus went to the cross to become the curse so that it would never apply to the believer again. Again, remember what Jesus said to his disciples. He said, it's better for you that I go away. Why? Because if I can't, don't go away, I can't become the curse for you and make you righteous. I'll have to keep laying aside your sins over and over and over again because you can't stop sinning because your nature is still one that's separated from God. The Bible says we were enemies of God because of spiritual death. So Jesus, Jesus would have to keep laying aside our sins again and again and again and again and again all throughout eternity. But instead, he said, I'm going to take care of this once and for all. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. For it is written... Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. Why did he do that? Two reasons. Verse 14. Reason number one, so that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through faith. Second reason, that, might, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit by faith in Jesus' work. What is he saying? He's saying he did it for two reasons. Number one, that we'd receive the promise of the Spirit. The promise of the Spirit there is not the Holy Ghost coming upon you. The promise of the Spirit there is righteousness because of a changed nature, being made a new creature in Christ Jesus. To what end? So that the blessing of Abraham would come on the Gentiles. What blessing of Abraham? The blessing of healing instead of sickness, prosperity instead of poverty. So what is he doing? He's dealing with three things. He's dealing with spiritual death by making us righteous. He's dealing with sickness by healing us. He's dealing with poverty by making us prosper. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Look with me over. I think we've done this before, but look with me over to, to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Let me show you something else about this. And here's the, here's the thing that just keeps going on and on with me and over and over again in my heart. 
2 Timothy chapter 1. Let's start reading in verse 6. Wherefore, he's talking to Timothy, minister of the gospel. Wherefore, I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by putting on of my hands. In other words, he's saying, Timothy, you've got something, a spiritual deposit in you because of what I laid hands on you for. When I laid hands on you, a spiritual deposit was made. Stir that up. Don't forget it. Stir it up. Which tells us that just because you've got something doesn't mean it'll work automatically. You've got to give yourself to it. That's the way the things of God work. That's why it's so important for you to pray in tongues regularly. Because just because you have a deposit of the Holy Spirit or being filled with the Holy Spirit, you still have to utilize it and stir it up. Just because you've got a promise that the Holy Ghost is going to lead you does not mean you're going to know what to do unless you stir that gift up and let Him show you. It's the way all the things of God work. God's a gentleman. He doesn't force anything on you. Just because you receive something doesn't mean it's all peaches and cream and wait and see what's going to happen. No, that's when you start exercising it. So he said, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting out of my hands. For, here's why, for God has not given us the spirit of fear. Apparently Timothy is afraid to do whatever he is, afraid to operate in whatever it is he's got and receive through Paul laying on his hands. For God has not given us the spirit of fear. Don't be afraid to use it. But here's what God's given us instead. But of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But be thou a partaker of the affliction of the gospel according to the power of God. He's saying, Timothy, don't be shy about this stuff. It doesn't matter that people are against me. Don't, let, don't be ashamed of that. Don't be ashamed of knowing me. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the truth of the gospel. Get in there. Be strong. Be bold. Take hold of it. Be a partaker of those afflictions. In other words, those that stand up boldly are going to be the ones that are the targets for people that don't want to believe. Don't let that shake you. Don't let that scare you away. Decide it for yourself. I'm going to be as bold as I need to be to make sure that everybody hears the good news of Jesus. Doesn't mean you have to be crazy about things. Doesn't mean you have to go get a um, megaphone and, and, you know, make yourself a nuisance. But it means you've got to be ready when the, when the opportunity arises. And God brings opportunities to people that, that ready themselves. Well, Pastor Mike, I just never have a chance to, to witness. Then you're not stirring yourself up and getting yourself ready. Because God will make opportunities for those who have readied themselves, prepared themselves. So he said, don't be ashamed of these things, but be willing to be a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our own works, or, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. In other words, now we know what the purpose of God is. Now we know God's original intent was to restore man to Adam's position of authority by making him a new creature in Christ Jesus. Living side by side with the devil, if You'll accept me using that term. I don't mean buddying up with him. But living in the same world with the devil, but not affected by him or influenced by him. That's the purpose of God. But is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death. The word abolished means destroyed. Jesus 
destroyed death. Now, what death? Would a man still physically die? Sure. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. So physical death is not abolished. So that must not be what he's talking about. What then is he talking about? Jesus abolished or destroyed spiritual death. That's what Galatians 3.13 means. Christ redeems us from the curse of the law. He destroyed spiritual death and its offshoots, sickness and poverty. He destroyed it once and for all. Now that doesn't mean it doesn't exist in the earth. It means it doesn't exist or have influence upon the believer. Spiritual death is still here. Sickness is still here. Christian science says that sickness is a figment of your imagination. Well, there are, a lot of people are dying through their imagination. Then. That's just wrong. Sickness is real. Poverty is real. But it has no influence or power over you. Because you've made Jesus the Lord of your life. But Pastor Mike, if that's true, why am I still sick? Why am I attacked with sickness? Why am I bothered or hindered by poverty? Because you haven't figured out yet who you are. You haven't come to the realization of who we are in Christ Jesus. Let me show you another couple of scriptures. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 8. I guess while you're turning there, let me finish reading verse 10. I only got halfway through. But now is made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and have brought life and immortality to light through the gospel notice the contrast that he makes he abolished death and now life and immortality are the big deal romans chapter 8 verse 1 there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in christ jesus verse 2 for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. There's still a law of sin and death, but it doesn't apply to the Christian. Why? Because it's been destroyed. It's been destroyed. It's been abolished. It's been done away with once and for all. This verse of Scripture has always intrigued me because this is the verse of Scripture that John Lake said set him free. This is the scripture that John Lake said set him on the course of ministry that, that was earth-changing. He had a ministry in South Africa where millions of people were saved, primarily through the demonstration of the power of God. We're talking witch doctor tribes, and we're talking stuff like that. We're talking about people doing voodoo stuff and supernatural stuff that, that you and I might even wonder, does the devil have that kind of power? But Lake would come on the scene and take authority over the thing. And the, the greatest, most powerful witch doctor would be absolutely flummoxed. Because Lake would take authority in the name of Jesus and, he, and the guys would be unable to do anything. And they would recognize that Lake was the problem. They didn't know anything about Jesus, but they would recognize as long as this guy's here, I can't do anything. And so everybody realized, everybody came to realize that Lake was the greater power. And he just said... It's the authority that I have in the, in the name of Jesus. He would always quote this verse of Scripture. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. There was a bubonic plague that, that broke out in South Africa while he was there. And the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers went down there and brought relief. And, and uh, people were dying by the tens of thousands. 
And so the American government got involved and came down there. And when they got the medical team in place, the medical team realized that Lake was working with the sick and he wasn't getting sick. And so they asked, what immunization do you have against the bubonic plague, against this plague? And he said, Romans 8, 2. They said, what? what? What's that? He said, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. They said, we don't understand what you're talking about. He said, well, okay, let me show you. And apparently, I don't know anything about the sickness, but according to the story, when people died, there was this bloody froth that would come out of their mouths. And so this bloody froth was teeming with the disease germs and so forth. And so somebody had just died. So Lake went over and took a slide, a, a microscope, uh, microscope slide. Is that what you call it? Slides? Whatever it is. Scraped some of this stuff off that guy's uh, lips. Stuck it under a microscope and everybody could see that it was teeming with these disease germs. He took that slide, wiped it off in his hand, left it there for a minute, wiped it back on the slide and put it on the, uh, uh, under the microscope. And every germ was dead. Now, I don't recommend you doing that. But he knew who he was. He knew that the law of the spirit of life had destroyed the law of sin and death, at least has destroyed its authority or influence over him. Obviously, it still had influence on the earth because people are dying from sickness. But it didn't have any power over him. And that was the foundation, according to his testimony, that was the foundation for what happened in Seattle, Washington, or Spokane, Washington, I'm sorry, when he came back to the United States and started healing rooms and were documented that over 500,000 people were healed. Doctors verified the fact that this person had cancer, now they don't. This person had tuberculosis, now they don't, whatever the case was. Over 500,000 documented cases. There's no telling how many other people were healed. The cases just weren't documented by doctors. The newspapers proclaimed Spokane, Washington, the healthiest city in America because of John Lake. Not a bad record, wouldn't you agree? Why? Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Look with me over to 1 John chapter 1, or chapter 3. Well, I don't know. I'll find it when I get there. It's in 1 John somewhere. First John, I think it's the third chapter. Yeah, the last part of First John chapter three, verse eight. It says, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now notice the word works is plural. Why? Because the devil has a lot of works. But there is one primary work that Jesus dealt with, and that was spiritual death. And the fact that he has dealt with once and for all spiritual death, he has abolished spiritual death. He redeemed us from the curse of the law, meaning the curse of the broken law, which was spiritual death. The fact that he has abolished that and destroyed that curse means the byproducts of that curse, sickness and poverty, have always already been dealt with too. If we could just come to understand that the, that the power of sin and say, is the power of spiritual death, the power of sickness, the power of poverty has already been broken in us, over us. It's still here in the earth. We still have to deal with it because it'll try to take over territory. 
it's kind of like a weed that grows in your yard. You think you get it all pulled up, and then you find that here it is growing in another little patch. So what do you do? You don't surrender to it. You go back and you dig up that part. And you take it little by little if necessary until it's all gone and never comes back. So you do have to deal with sickness. You do have to deal with poverty. But when we come to the realization that because we've been made righteous, sin, sickness, and, and poverty have no authority over us. That's when you start living the Jesus life. Now, I'm preaching to me as much as I'm preaching to you. Because I don't see it like I need to see it. I'm seeing more of it. But I don't yet see it like I should either. Folks, I want you to understand something. You are in a greater place with God than Jesus, who was here on the earth operating as a righteous man. Jesus was here on the earth as a man under the old covenant, but without sin. He was anointed of God, and that's what enabled him to do great works. But the Bible says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, I believe it is, that Jesus was the first begotten from the dead. He was the first begotten from the dead. Now, remember what Jesus said. He told his disciples, it's better for you that I go away, because if I don't go away, the Holy Ghost can't come to you. So, in other words, he's saying the new birth, the new creation is better than me staying here with you. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, it says that Jesus was the firstborn of many brethren. What does that mean? That means you have the same place with God now that Jesus has now. And the Bible says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Can I ask you a question? I know this sounds stupid, but I really want you to consider it. How much devil problem do you think Jesus has? He's in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God. You know the only difference between Jesus and you? Only difference between Jesus and you is that you live in a place where Satan is still present. But he has no more authority over you. He has no more influence over you than he has over Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Christ has redeemed you from the curse of the law. The curse of spiritual death. Folks, we're not talking fairy tales. We're talking facts. It is a fact. It is an established fact. It is an eternal fact that sin, sickness, and any other characteristic, none other characteristic of spiritual death has or will ever have any influence on you. Because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made you free from the law of sin and death. If our eyes will ever be open to that. If Jesus could come down and just somehow wave his hand and our eyes, our spiritual eyes be open to that, this group of people, this small group of people in this room would change the earth. And the only thing that keeps us from it is because we don't yet see. I don't know about you, but I'm going to keep working at it until I see it. I know it's true. I know it's true because the Bible says so. I believe it's true because it's the word of God. But I'm working on seeing it. Because just a glimpse of this will change our world. Let's pray.